Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury. And I'm Peter DeBeer, back for yeah. another episode. Just, just, Peter's just back. For now. Chris, unfortunately, was eaten by a crocodile and is currently in recovery. He's never coming um, back. Uh, and by He's never, we mean it's going to be like a week or whatever. I had to bury him personally. Yeah. It was yeah. very but sad. <laughs> it, it, Only dude, I showed up to his funeral. <laughs> <laughs> that is sad. Shame. Especially when you take into account the fact that apparently his uh, roommate is a gerbil. Um, yeah, so Chris is out for this week, and Ryan asked me, and very luckily for him, the month of Ramadan is about to get started, and so I have a day off in which I can jump back in here for. Uh, a one-off performance. Oh yeah, so I, I kept meaning to ask you, why did you not know whether today was Ramadan or not? Okay, I was um, confused by that. So the way Ramadan works is uh, the Islamic clergy have to uh, the, the head of of um, the regional uh, clergy will uh-huh. literally have to sight the moon. They have to see it. And they they then declare the start of the month of Ramadan. And um, so I actually wasn't far off in my guess. I was like, what the fuck does a groundhog have to see a shadow for it to be Sunday or something? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Um, (laughs) uh, Like uh, I have I have my theories that uh, governments get involved to try and avoid extra public holidays and that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, what what generally happens is within the region, obviously, the moon um, uh, get cited if for instance it is completely cloudy uh, there's a good chance that ramadan will be delayed by a day because it hasn't uh, the moon hasn't been seen that kind of thing so as of right now we still don't actually know um when ramadan starts uh it was possibly supposed to start last night but there was no word on anything because the whole region had cloud cover um mm-hmm. but yeah, it should it should start by tonight. Um, otherwise, at the latest tomorrow night. Gotcha. Yeah, that's um, I think it's Voltaire, um, some some French impo- important French guy. You know, they're all the same. Doesn't really matter. So, but basically, uh, Voltaire suggested moving all religious holidays, like all uh, Christian holidays, to Sundays to like minimize the amount of days off that peasants would get. So that's why shit. most Christian holidays are on Sundays now. And this is why we used to have that, that, that very important saying, fuck the French. <laughs> yeah, I think it eliminated like like 60 holidays or something like that because they already had Sundays off basically, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's crazy. Bloody clever it is. Yeah. Um, nice French accent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Uh, what we're discussing today is strategic sabotage. Yeah. Uh, so I think yeah. we've talked about it before on the show. Yeah, we I have. Mean, we've we definitely have, mentioned it. We well, we definitely mentioned it when you and I did the capitalist power episodes. Right. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't remember if we did a whole episode on that or if we focus no, on no, other parts no, of it. No, no. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, we, we mentioned it in passing. And if we did a lot of focus on it, uh, ignore that, listen to this <laughs> podcast, and then go back and, and tell us that we've done this before. Yeah. Well, you know, I, 
I've been thinking about it lately, and I think that we will end up repeating ourselves because the way people listen to podcasts, like a lot of people aren't going to go back and listen to the entire thing, you know, like we're up to like 73 episodes now. So that's like a lot of hours. Um, Meh. Meh. People will sit and binge an entire season of, of uh, uh, Game of Thrones or, or whatever. And I think they can make True. a couple of hours to save um, the world by listening to our podcast. I don't know if we're uh, Game of Thrones quality. I think we're probably a little bit better than that. Um, yeah, but... yeah, yeah. Look, look, we don't have their budget, <laughs> but we have a lot more brain power. I mean, I, I do have their budget personally, but I just choose not to spend it because I like the lo-fi sound. Um, yeah, that's just yeah, kind of what I'm going I mean, for. Come on. Yeah, come on. Yeah. Come on. I've been thinking of getting a reverb pedal for my mic. <laughs> oh god i do not want to hear that i, I really don't shoegaze podcasting <laughs> and that's exactly what was going on in my head is there's ryan sitting there strategic sabotage <laughs> just won't be able to understand anything that i say but you'll get the feeling of of yeah, what it is yeah. i'm going for yeah exactly <laughs> I'm, I'm busy. I'm busy broadcasting Bookchin. You know, it's it's there. You can feel him through me. Chloe's gonna be mad that I made that joke before her. <laughs> uh, well, top titties. Okay. Yeah. So, so um, tell us a little bit more about the concept of strategic sabotage for those that haven't heard the capitalist power episodes. Right. So it's a concept introduced by Thorstein Veblen. Uh, who is one of the earlier political economists. I think he was like, yeah, he was writing like the 1910s, 1900s and 1910s. So he had an interesting perspective because that's like a, first of all, not a uh, time that you hear much about, I think. And yeah, um, yeah. it's also like after the the peak of like robber barons in the 1800s. Um, so he had a lot of uh, unique insights to, how capitalism works like beyond far beyond what Marx wrote, I think because Marx was kind of like uh, maybe not before the robber barons, but like, you know, in the early stages of that. Yeah. Uh, he wouldn't period. have been able to see the, the proper evolution of robber barons. Yeah. And uh, so basically um, Thorstein Veblen uh, considers industry and business to be two distinct spheres of activity. So, Industry is what humans do, uh, like, you know, production and reproduction, that sort of thing. Like, industry would happen outside of capitalism, um, whereas business is a political sphere that is attempting to control industry. And so the only way, according to Veblen, that that is able to happen is uh, by business sabotaging industry um and it essentially does so to get money out of it um you know money being a a representation of political power so they're they're essentially sabotaging industry in order to subjugate workers to the state and to get the allegiance of both uh workers and like the customers that would depend on that industry yeah, that's, that's that's a good description. It's, uh, I mean, let's face it. Uh, prior to the advent of modern capitalism, um, and and really in any form of political economy, 
you you've got industry it happens people yeah. people are incapable of sitting still i i know this i know this intimately um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the idea that veblen is putting across is that by by distinguishing these two we can really we can start to analyze it and i uh, like when i read absentee ownership i um which is which is uh, the the book where he first described this um I loved it. I, I I loved finally being able to understand the difference between the two. So I have I actually have not read that book. So that's that's great that you've read it. Um, yeah, I mean you're a bigger reader than I am. I think. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I was. I was. <laughs> okay. And, and, well, so you actually and, read it a while ago. Yeah. No, I read it. Um, I actually read it before I read Capital is Power. Nice. And. I'd forgotten about it by the time I read Capital is Power. So I I did like, I'd never actually connected it properly to my own thinking. It was something that I'd read on a bus trip from Durban to Johannesburg um, because there's literally nothing else you can do. And I needed to drown out (laughs) the terrible movies that they play on those buses. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And, and like, it, it was a good read that, that helped me understand and I suppose kind of formed my original ideas about Viax and so on and so forth. But uh-huh. uh, yeah, I never, it wasn't until I read Capitalist Power that all the puzzle pieces started falling into place for me. So I think I don't read as many books because I don't really travel as much. Like almost all of the reading that I've done is, has been like on a, a bus or a plane or a train. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think maybe I um, am more well-read simply because I have traveled a shitload in my life. Yeah. Way too much, actually. If, <laughs> like, if I had to take the metro to work, I would probably be, like, a big book reader. <laughs> you, uh, like, you should do what I did on, with my last job. If, if you've got long distance to travel, just get an audio book. Uh, don't buy it for goodness sake, go on a torrent and, and VPN it and, and get yourself some audiobooks and um, play them while you drive, man. I love it. I absolutely love it. Well, I uh, don't have to drive anywhere. Uh, I literally just walk into my basement to start working. So that's not even an option for me. <laughs> that's how okay. little I travel. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're pretty much a lost cause to the... Yes. The, the, the world of, of audiobooks and regular books and, and yes. well, all authors. I mean, and... I do listen to podcasts all day while I'm working, um, but I think, it, I think an audiobook is harder. You have to concentrate more on that, I think. Yeah, you do have to concentrate. Like, <laughs> well, um, I was uh, listening to David Graeber's, um, he did a, a book on um, Occupy Wall Street. And, oh okay i haven't read and, that one yeah so i listened to the podcast of that and i literally because i kept having people in the car with me um i i'd have to turn down the volume while i was listening to them talk about and then by the end of the day when i was driving back home i'd have to go right back to the beginning and start it all <laughs> over again like it literally, it literally took me a month to finish that one book and i had 45 minutes, uh, no, actually like an hour and a half every day to listen to that podcast. Should have taken me like five days. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so right. let's talk so, about some examples of, 
of um, st strategic sabotage, just so that we can clarify the concept, because um, right. Well, I mean, that's that's pretty much the the episode. Is we're we're just talking about examples, and uh, but like right before we get into that, um, I just I just wanted to mention that a lot of people are probably familiar with a more extreme version of this process of strategic sabotage called that's uh, called disaster capitalism. I think Naomi Klein coined that term. Another um, audio book I listened to was Disaster Capitalism. Great. Okay, so it was Naomi Klein. Cool. Yes. Um, yeah, so that's that's basically the most extreme version of that. So we're going to talk about some of the more mundane examples, um, some of the more like everyday examples. I They're know, not boring. I just, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just want to say that it's usually the more mundane stuff that is more insidious because, yes. uh, you, you know, Disaster Capitalism, it... it it brings up feelings of rage. But when you think about um, strategic sabotage in, in the computing industry, very few people are going to get their blood boiling about it, even though they really should, because the practice of strategic sabotage is responsible for most of the shit that actually uh, helps capitalism continue to rule the world. And most of the shit that like sucks about computers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Every time uh, you want to throw the keyboard out the window, don't. Write a long essay about strategic sabotage. Yeah. So on the industrial side of computer data, uh, most of us probably remember the emergence of peer-to-peer -peer file sharing services like Napster, which came out in 1999. And if you don't remember that, you're too young to be listening to this show. Turn it off and go to bed. Um, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Jesus. So when that came out, people began sharing music like crazy, especially because like most people didn't even think it was illegal. Like a lot of people found out that piracy was illegal from the court case that came later. Um, so I mean, it was just like it makes sense to think that it wouldn't be illegal because you're not stealing anything; you're copying a file. Uh, nobody like loses their data. I've you're had not, like, to. I've, I've had this exact argument with people um, on Facebook so many times where they're yeah, telling yeah. me, no, 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 no. When you copy a file or when you torrent a file or when it, it's theft. And I'm like, nobody, nobody. It's piracy uh, and theft is a different concept. Um, if I go to your house and I steal your car, when you wake up in the morning, your car is no longer there. When I steal a file off your computer by copying it and you wake up in the morning and you go to your computer, the file is still there. I haven't actually done anything. I haven't, I haven't reduced the value of your file to you. I have reduced the value of the file to the guy that makes money off of that file. Right. So do they, I don't know if they have this internationally, do they have that, that video that's like, you wouldn't steal a purse, you wouldn't steal a car. <laughs> They they, you know they, they have it in they have it in South Africa. Okay. And they have it in the UK. They they have it in most of the countries I've been to. Interestingly, they don't have it here in Bahrain. <laughs> we would definitely steal a file. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna lie. Um here I don't know anyone like I do know a couple of people that have Netflix subscriptions and so on, but um, I don't know anyone on this island that I that I know on a one-to-one -one level that doesn't torrent. Everyone does it. Everyone <laughs> in their offices, uh, they all use pirated software. Like I, I'd be very surprised to learn that 
any of the major computer companies make any money from Bahrain. I, I would be I would be amazed to learn this. Um, yeah, don't you still use uh, like Photoshop ES5 because you can actually pirate it? Uh, actually, I'm on CS6 and it is pirated. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> nice. And I'm talking about um, both my home version and my office version. <laughs> hell yeah, dude. <laughs> um, so when Napster came out, uh, it was sued almost immediately by the, uh, the famous Recording Industry Association of America, that organization that everybody knows and loves. Um, yeah, and yeah. so that was in 1999 that they sued them. And then in 2001, they, they won a court injunction that forced Napster to shut down. Um, but as we all know, there was an explosion in peer-to-peer networks like Kazaa, LimeWare, uh, ShareBear, a bunch of other shit. Oh God! Uh, if if I think back to LimeWire, oh uh, beloved LimeWire, you gave me so many viruses. <laughs> yes, yeah. So that was one of the big problems with the peer-to-peer networks was you could get your song, but you would also get a bunch of viruses with it. Yeah, it was awesome. It was yeah. the best way to shut down your Windows. Um, yes. And by the way, uh, one of those peer-to-peer networks still up, uh, SoulSeek, no viruses, uh, any music you can think of. Like, yeah, I still it's really I, the best place to look for music. I've been using SoulSeek ever since you recommended it back in yeah. our first season, it, it and rules. and it it really is it really is the best the best um, file sharing tech on the yeah. The, the thing I always tell people is I looked for. This, this one song for like eight years. It's from a very obscure Xbox game called Phantom Crash. Uh, like it was like a cult classic video game. And they had all these like um, small time Japanese bands uh, contribute a few songs for the soundtrack. It had an outstanding soundtrack. And like the way it worked was like you could buy albums in the in game with the in game currency. It's not like, you know, a like a modern in-game currency where it's like micropayments. It was like, you know, credits or whatever you like fight robots and then you get prize money. And then you could use the prize money to buy like robot parts and shit like that. Um, but you could also buy music. And so I looked for this, one of the songs from that game for eight years and I finally found it on soul seek. So I, I, I'm not going to band is called win a sheep free. <laughs> <laughs> That is the most awesome name. Yeah, oh God. it's like this. Winish. It's like this super pleasant, like Japanese, like soft rock girl band. It's <laughs> That's great. awesome. When is she free? Yeah. yeah, I should just put the song. Um, I don't know if I still have it because I think I might have lost my music collection since I found it. But uh, I'll try and find it again, and I'll put it as the outro music for this episode. That'll be awesome. Yeah, and I can hear it too. Yeah, and if I don't have that, I actually have a physical CD of theirs. Surprisingly, I, f- I found that on the internet as well. Um, That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Anyway, um, so by 2001, the technology had already evolved uh, with the introduction of BitTorrent, which uh, if you don't know how that works, it basically lets a lot of different people um, upload a file at once, and it like breaks it up into little pieces. And um, so each user can upload a small piece at a time. And so that lets you download from multiple sources at once, which drastically raises the transfer speed. Um, and torrents later became capable of streaming as well, 
which means that our technology as of like five or 10 years ago uh, was capable of streaming any piece of content at high speed from people's personal computers without a central server other than the one used to link the content address for the file. So like we okay. could literally just create a website that uh, has a big database of links to torrents um, that you could just like search and filter for like any any piece of media or software or anything that could be represented as a digital file. And then, uh, you know, it could be shared from that site uh, at extremely high speeds from anyone without depending on um, a business to run it. Uh, but that's not legal. So uh, the closest thing we have is the Pirate Bay. <laughs> Which, speaking of viruses, <laughs> definitely a lot oh, on there as well. Oh, yeah. Damn. Uh, um, but, of course, the bigger risk with the Pirate Bay is your ISP uh, will check uh, popular torrents to see who is in the uh, swarm, which is like the uh, group of people that are uploading it, and they will uh, send you a strike, like a copyright strike. And if you get three strikes, you're like kicked off or rate limited or whatever. Yeah. For the record, that's mostly a U.S. thing. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, like I, I, I've been using BitTorrent for several years now and I've never gotten any kind of problem with it. And that's using in South Africa. It's using in um, the Middle East. It's using in, uh, South America when I was visiting there. It was using in Australia when I was visiting there. Like, it's... It's probably because we have all the uh, recording industry associations. Yes, yes, those guys. Which really so cool. should be called recording business associations. Exactly. Yeah, RBAA. <laughs> okay, Yeah. so um, before we move on to the next one, I just wanted to point out that for me, the most obvious... Um, form of of uh, strategic sabotage has always been my namesake uh the de beers diamond oh yeah uh-huh. corporation um and i mean this, this is this is not this is not even a secret or whatever for decades uh the de beers diamond corporation um they didn't even pretend to hide the fact that they were controlling the entire diamond uh business by uh, withholding very Dutch thing to do, market. just to openly, <laughs> yeah, openly yeah, control yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah, like uh, we we are the mafia. We are the, the the cartel that controls everything, and literally there is nothing that anyone can do about it. So we're just going to be open about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So what they would do is um, they would mine. Uh, the, the, or they would own most of the, uh, the the legally operated mines around the world that produce diamonds. Then they would um, also uh, buy most of the rough diamond buyers. So anyone who's managed to find a diamond or mine a diamond or whatever that isn't already controlled by De Beers, they would have to go, the only p places that they could sell those diamonds was through a registered De Beers uh, buyer. Then uh, De Beers controlled pretty much all of the, uh, the 
the producers, the guy that, that took it from a rough diamond to being a, a finished product diamond. Then they controlled uh, like nine, uh, between 75 and 90% of all the sellers. So in every stage on the supply side, it was always controlled by De Beers. And I mean, there are so that's, many. That's what's called vertical integration in, I don't know yeah. if that's economics or business or both, but yeah, uh, yeah I think both. it's business. Yeah. Um, so the idea uh, that, uh, like there are so many myths that were literally created by De Beers um, as part yeah, of their there's a, marketing strategy. There's a really good paper by uh, Troy Cochran of European University. He's a capitalist yeah. power guy. And uh, he talks about how before the beers came along, um, diamonds like diamonds were not associated with marriage at all. Um, at all, at yeah, all, people, at all. People got married with like emeralds and rubies and stuff just as often. Ru yeah, yeah. Rubies and sapphires were the most popular for engagement rings before diamonds came along. Yep. And, and the reason that the beers went with diamonds was because they are so common. They are not a rare mineral at all. At like at all. Yeah, at I think all. they're as common as quartz. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, because of geological processes, it's more difficult to produce quartz than it is to make <laughs> diamonds. Uh, uh, the, uh, they are literally all over the world, and it was only in the late 2000s that the technology became available um, to be able to spot the, the geological uh, systems that produce diamonds um, easily enough that pretty much it started popping up everywhere and the beers realized that they were losing control of the market um, on the supply side and they decided to split up. And that process took uh, between eight years and a decade. And uh, now they only control like 25% of the industry. Interesting. Um, That's actually one yeah. of the things that made me a communist because I found out about De Beers controlling the diamond trade like pretty early, like probably 2008. Yeah. So like right, right when I was out of high school, I found out about this shit and I was like, wow, capitalism is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's more or less the time you and I met. Yeah. I, I, wonder if we've, I wonder if it was from Zeitgeist. Yeah. Might have been yeah, that guy's. I don't know. Probably. Might have been. Yeah. Like, you are probably the only reason I appreciate Zeitgeist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, in essence, the way that they have strategically sabotaged the, the diamond industry um, has created value where no value existed before. Um, right. In, uh, in the economic sense, like from an industrial perspective, diamonds are useful. They do have value for, for numerous purposes. But those but, are, those uses are very, very new though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and because they were so, uh, diamonds were so numerous to begin with, uh, and, and plentiful, De Beers had to go on this massive marketing campaign to basically create the demand for diamonds. And, and I mean, they paid millions of dollars to Hollywood to make sure that this agenda was pushed. They had uh, a I wonder if they inherited money from the East India Company or some shit like that. Like some of them, some I of their wouldn't ancestors be, had equity in there. 
like I wouldn't be surprised at all. The uh, yeah. the original. I think we've discussed this before, but for anyone who hasn't heard that before, um, my family, the De Beer family, has literally never had anything to do with De Beer's diamonds. Uh, <laughs> the the farm where the first diamonds were found in South Africa was called the De Beer's Farms. It was owned by two of my great 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 ancestors. Um, and it was two brothers. They found a diamond. Uh, they went to go sell it. Anglo, uh, Anglo-American found out about it. And they sent Cecil John Rhodes in to buy up the farm. And once they bought the farm from the brothers for not much money, um, they went to go do the paperwork and realized it was cheaper to change the name of the company they had founded for the diamonds than to change the name of the farm. So <laughs> the name De Beers just became the name of the company. Um, and yeah, the rest so is So they history. just stole your name? Yeah, pretty much. Now, That's wherever I crazy, go, dude. <laughs> wherever I go, people are like, Peter De Beers, you mean like De Beers Diamonds? And I'm like, yes, you can sell it that way. That is cultural um, appropriation, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. I am going to sue. Um, yeah, I'm never going to sue De Beers because, let's face it, they they have a lot more clout than I do. Um, yeah. In fact, they have so much clout that it took it took nearly two decades of cumulative court cases in the U.S. Um, to eventually force their their their, their breakup. Um, they they were violating so many U.S. antitrust laws. Uh, that eventually... It, well, laws are meant to be broken. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> especially if you're a massive multinational corporation. Um, of course. Yeah, I mean, you're the only one that's then allowed... The most to... important type of person. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the whole strategic sabotage by De Beers, for me, is... It is the most obvious version of strategic sabotage. It's also yeah. a, a, probably one of the most blatant, one of the most well documented uh, yeah. uh, forms of strategic sabotage. So, if also adds a, episode, a whole level of irony to the paradox of value. Exactly. Which, <laughs> if, if you don't know what that is, it's the observed paradox that uh, the price of diamonds is higher than the price of water, even though water is like actually more valuable yeah because you like, kind of need it to live and stuff yeah yeah and so economics purports to solve that through uh marginal utility which is like <laughs> a keynesian thing which means yeah. like one additional unit of diamonds is more valuable to you than one additional unit of water you know the classic <laughs> water unit <laughs> yeah um, listen <laughs> j j just so we're clear i live in the desert and bullshit canes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Water is more valuable. Uh, anyone who says that diamonds are more valuable and that they have solved the paradox of value is full of shit. <laughs> the paradox of value is that prices are wrong and they don't ref reflect value at all. <laughs> so. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's okay. look at another example. Um, yeah. So. I really want to talk about this, uh, another tech example, because I remember this is another thing that early on I, I was like, capitalism is bullshit. And this is probably when I was like 12 that uh, this happened. Uh, Divix, which uh, some people may know the 
video codec DivX. It's not the same thing. It's completely separate. Um, DivX was a, an attempt at an alternative to DVD rental by Circuit City and some fucking IP law firm from Germany or something like that. Um, and uh, so it was, it was a uh, digital, uh, like optical video disc, like uh, DVDs. Um, but it was a special format where you buy it and uh, it stops working after 48 hours. Um, yes. So you buy a DVD. And by the way, it's not like you, when you go to Blockbuster and you rent a DVD, it was like five bucks. It was a full price DVD, sometimes even more expensive. And you would need to have a special DivX player, uh, which was like a DVD player, but it also played DivX discs and had a phone line connected to it so that it could phone home and figure out whether or not it was allowed to play the movie. And if you wanted to play the movie after the 48 hours, you could upgrade to like DivX gold or premium or whatever the fuck it was. And so that would cost extra money uh, to be able to watch your movie after two days. Um, Holy shit. uh, So the funny thing about this was not only was it a flop because it's, it's a shitty idea that sucks and like who who would want to do that. Uh, But there was also an opposition movement to it, not because it was a terrible idea that sucks, but because film dorks were afraid that if it were successful, its use of pan and scan over widescreen would make it impossible to get movies in their original widescreen format. Oh, my God. (laughs) And uh, it also may have been one of the earliest uses of uh, internet troll farms to advertise. Um, Because according to... I mean, it's just like a a comment on a blog, but it seems trustworthy to me. Um, This guy says he remembers seeing on... uh, BBSs, which were popular back then, there were like uh, just random accounts posting about how great DivX is on like every BBS that people were using back then. <laughs> oh God, amateurs! Really, amateurs! Yeah, you don't just talk about how great the product is. You also have to have at least thirty percent of your troll farm talk about how shit it is. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I like I remember my I was at my uncle's house and he was telling me about this shit. He actually had DivX movies, which was the funniest part. He was like making fun of it, but it was like, but you have a DivX player, yeah, there's DivX movies. So like, they saw you coming. We should be making fun of you. (laughs) But I just remember being like, that is so fucking wasteful. Like, what what is that shit? What why? There's there's Blockbuster. We have Blockbuster. Just do Blockbuster. This is insane. I had no idea about this. Yeah, it's uh, it was a weird thing. Probably a lot of people don't remember at all. Yeah, um, no, damn. So I'm, yeah, I'm in shock now. I don't like. I'm even <laughs> scrolling back and forth on our notes just just to try and like process this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, weird time, and uh, I wonder, I wonder if there are people listening that don't even know about Circuit City. That was like the alternative to Best Buy. Um, yeah. went yeah, under yeah. in like the mid two thousands. I remember uh, all of my friends in high school were there, and um, at one point, uh, their entire warehouse w- walked out on the job because their labor conditions were so shitty. Oh my god! Speaking to contrast, I was working in the Best Buy warehouse, and that kicked ass. I got paid a ton <laughs> of money. Uh, 
we we could take a ton of breaks. Uh, we could scream and swear as loud as we wanted. It was it was awesome. Great job. <laughs> um, I got a, a, a just like while we're talking about walkouts and stuff. Uh, it was Labor Day this weekend. Uh, uh, this week, um, the first of May, and I got an an SMS from a, a Nissan dealership here that does my car services. Uh-huh. And I was I was utterly shocked because they were offering me a Labor Day special where they offered free labor on <laughs> on any services being done. And and okay. like it took me a while to register that this is what they were doing because <laughs> like do you understand the concept of Labor Day? <laughs> we're celebrating come down to the nissan dealership for the mayday slave labor special <laughs> one day like, only <laughs> like what the hell people we celebrate labor day to uh, like anyone who works on labor day should be paid quadruple this is yeah. this is just standard now you you're get telling... equity in the company exactly <laughs> exactly and they're just like an offering free services i was like i i was shocked I was shocked. I want to sell my Nissan after that. I can't because I need it. But um, yeah. yeah, Jesus. Yeah. I mean, like, who's going to have better labor practices? You know, Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Toyota. <laughs> well, so. at least, uh, uh, and also, uh, while we're on the topic of Nissan, I am so sick of hear- hearing about this Goan dude. Goan. Who? Goan. The, the CEO of Nissan and uh, is it Mitsubishi and that whole group of companies that uh, he's being um, sued by the Japanese government and he's got they're facing multiple oh, charges. Oh, I missed this. Oh yeah, no, you should check it out. They they are really gunning for him. Um, huh. And I can guarantee you the entire thing is basically them um it's an internal power struggle that's happening yeah. um but it's it's been playing in the media because i listen to bbc world service radio while i'm driving to and from work now and literally almost on a daily basis they do, uh, keep talking about charles Goen and how he's being targeted by uh, the japanese government and how he's under house arrest and the charges he's facing and he's got uh, uh, entire countries lobbying on his behalf, and uh, like, oh my god! Well, we should do an episode on that because I want to do. I want to uh, take a, a stronger focus on the Japanese economy, not only because I'm a weeb, but also because it's a very unusual economy because they've had deflation for decades. And uh, we're actually the next episode we're going to do is going to be about uh, bonds, government bonds, and I'm going to be talking about uh, Japan. Uh, quite a bit in there because uh, their government bonds have negative yields. So you buy a bond and then you get less money back. Um, awesome. So we're going to talk. We're going to talk about why that why that is. So um, that would be another good topic the, to cover. Yeah, just for the record, even though Japan uh, has had a deflationary economy for a lo- uh, quite a while now, um, they're still light years ahead of most other countries on the planet when it comes to most uh, technological advances and so on. And one might even say that it's because they don't let business control industry as much there. Yeah. Well, I think, I actually think deflation is good. So. Yeah, so do I. Like I, 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 
I fully advocate scaling back our global economy uh, as much as possible um, yeah. for, for ecological reasons. Um, and I think, it, I think a goal for leftists trying to change their national government and economy should be to uh, trigger massive deflation. I think that would be a huge help yeah. to the working class. Uh, because even if even if your pay doesn't change, if there's deflation, your situation's improving. Exactly, exactly. Your, All right, your... so we're getting a little off track here. Um, Are so we? Let's, let's get back to sabotage. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I don't know how you and Chris do things, but I remember clearly that you and I had a solid thing going about getting off track as often as possible. <laughs> I don't think we were trying to do it. We just did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We were like, screw the, screw the standards of the industry. Okay. <laughs> so speaking Where of standards we? in industry, <laughs> uh, the next thing we're going to talk about is computing standards. Um, so for the industry side, um, the capabilities of computers and computer networks depend entirely on intercompatibility. So to achieve that, uh, computing is built on open public standards like HTTP, XML, uh, the C programming language, JavaScript, stuff like that. Um, so for software development to work most effectively, the code in any standards it uses should be publicly available. That way, anyone can identify problems or limitations and make changes or make new software, um, make competing implementations of it, etc. Um, so Microsoft, the famous company that everyone loves so much. Uh, their entire business model depends on sabotaging software development. Um, and so they have strategies for um, hurting the open public standards so that they can extract revenue from, uh, from the process of software development and uh, the use of software. Um, so one of these strategies, which is just openly like First of all, it's, it has its own term in internal memos, and it's just openly strategic sabotage. Uh, it's called embrace, extend, extinguish. Um, it's, almost like they, it, it's almost like they went to the Dutch and said, could you give us a, a, a good naming <laughs> convention, please? And, they, and the Dutch were like, you're going to sabotage? Let us show you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the strategy is basically Microsoft embraces an open standard, and then they extend it with proprietary additions, and then they make their proprietary addition a de facto part of the standard, which then extinguishes the usefulness of the standard. So probably the most famous example of this was the ActiveX control, um, which is a web technology Microsoft developed. This was in the, the 2000s um, that undermined Java uh, and Netscape. Netscape was the most popular browser um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, Microsoft was trying to take over with Internet Explorer, which I believe it did successfully until Firefox came around. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and now Internet Explorer is like... <laughs> a joke. Yeah. 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 And now they're trying to push Edge, which is their new one, which I'm sure they're going to try and pull the same kind of shit with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, look, because, I mean, Internet Explorer is still... Bill has tons of proprietary extensions to CSS and JavaScript. Like you, if you develop a web app, you have to like if it's going to support Internet Explorer, you have to test it separately 
on Internet Explorer because it has so much proprietary bullshit with it. Okay, so two points on this. First yep. of all, um, right out of high school, my first um, set of studies in IT, I focused specifically on programming in Java. And mm -hmm. the, the, I mean, the first thing you learn about Java is that it was a programming language specifically developed as a, as a global unifier. Yes. Um, it, uh, designed it runs, to run on any operating system. Any, uh, literally any operating system. Any and any of, computer chipset, which like that might not mean as much to other people, but um, basically like different yeah, types it, of computer chips have different instruction sets, which are like the really low level instructions. And Java basically creates a layer over that um, that like essentially what happens is someone uh, writes a Java interpreter for that computer chipset for that instruction set. And the code that you write in Java gets translated to like an intermediate language that's then interpreted by that interpreter and converted into the instruction codes for that chipset. Okay, so, and, so, okay, and so for all the for all the non technically minded people that just listen to Ryan, um, what that means is you <laughs> should be able to program your phone to talk to your electronic lock on your door, and that should also be able to talk to your refrigerator. It, it, it's basically the precursor to the Internet of Things, um, where the the technology allows the integration of all physical hardware that has chipsets and yeah and you and you write the same code for anything like so, so a piece of code that you write should run on your phone and your computer and your exactly, door exactly exactly so yeah. now you've got this technology that was developed to work on everything and you've got microsoft coming along and saying well if it if it's that open then we're not going to be able to get any money out of that. So we're going to have to sabotage that by creating almost exactly the same thing. And then over right. a period of time, as it gets adopted, tweaking it constantly and making it more and more proprietary until we get to the point where the original open stuff is useless and mm -hmm. only our product uh, is the one that works and we can continually um, extract uh, uh, whatever price we want out of that. Right. And so like another, uh, example of embrace, extend, extinguish is, uh, actually CSS, uh, which is, it's the, uh, language that's used on the web to style web pages. So like everything that makes everything like colorful and determines where the position of all the different elements go, that's all done in CSS. And uh, so that's an open standard used by every browser. And Microsoft developed um, proprietary extensions to it in an attempt to sabotage it, um, which did not work, fortunately. And for those of you that don't know, very recently, when I say very recently, in like the last six months or whatever, uh, Microsoft has purchased GitHub. Oh, yeah, that was that was last year. Yeah. Oh, that was last um, year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's within the last six months. Yeah. I think. Um, and so that yeah, there's a worry there that um, they're attempting to sabotage that as well. Yeah. And um, and look, if we, if Microsoft's uh, modus operandi can be observed, uh, it's going to happen. They're going to slowly but surely use all that information on GitHub. Uh, 
put a whole bunch of programmers onto taking anything that is effective and popular and make versions of it that then can be tweaked to become proprietary. Yeah, I think I think what they're going to do there is uh, frog boiling, which is basically it's a term that means uh, making small tweaks to a contract over time to get it to a state that you want. It's like the whole thing where like if you throw a frog in a pot of boiling water, it'll jump out. But if you heat it up slowly, it won't notice. Um, that's where the, the term originates. And so I, I think basically what they're going to do is try and tweak the GitHub license over time so that they eventually like are able to either own your code outright or um, use parts of your code in theirs. And they're just going to like mine it for useful shit. I, th- I think that's okay, probably so, their strategy. Yeah. So I think we've basically cemented um, Microsoft as probably the leading um, evil corporation in the computing industry. Yeah, and we haven't even gotten to the one that I really want to talk about, which is uh, vendor lock-in. Okay, let's uh, let, which is let's get to that then. Yeah, so vendor lock-in is where product ecosystems are developed to make it costly or difficult to switch any one of the products to another vendor's. So, like a prime example of that would be Apple's ecosystem, where you know iPhones and Apple TV and iTunes and stuff, and and you know the uh, MacBooks and stuff, they all work very well with one another, but they work like absolute dog shit outside of that ecosystem. So if you have a an iPhone and a, a Microsoft PC, it doesn't work nearly as well. Um, or like a Apple TV doesn't work nearly as well without yeah. all the other, you know, uh, companion devices. But the prime example of this, I think, is uh, DirectX, which is a driver for computer video cards um, that... Basically, using only that piece of software, Microsoft developed a monopoly on the gaming computer market for decades. Um, So this is slowly going away, um, but they still basically have a monopoly on it. Um, And the basic explanation of it is um, there are two drivers for graphics cards. One is called DirectX, which is developed by Microsoft. One is OpenGL, which is an open standard developed by human industry. And um, it's basically what allows uh, programmers to uh, to create graphics engines on uh, the hardware uh, of the graphics card. Um, so Microsoft basically uh, went to uh, computer vendors like Dell and... Uh, HP and and so on, and uh, got them, or sorry, no, it went to the graphics cards uh, manufacturers and got them to support DirectX over OpenGL. And so in order to play any games which used DirectX graphics engines for the DirectX video cards, uh, you would have to use the Microsoft operating system because, of course, other operating systems don't support DirectX because it's Microsoft. Um, and so the effect of that was if you wanted to play PC games, you had to get Windows. And that's mostly still the case. There's um, some games that are now using OpenGL and are supported by Mac and Linux, uh, but it's definitely a minority. 
of games. It's like, you know, Minecraft and shit like that. Like more more indie games support it than blockbuster games. Fair enough. Yeah, I guess I guess maybe I don't know so much about this because I'm not a big gamer. Um I've, yeah. I've, I've never been a big gamer. But if you consider this the sheer size of the gaming industry and and the amount of power that they actually wield i'm not surprised in the slightest that that these kinds of um forms of sabotage exist there yeah it's pretty I mean, wild I, I mean like they used a single piece of software to get a monopoly yeah that's just, that blows my mind <laughs> that's when you're good at what you do you do it well <laughs> yeah and never do it for uh, free etc <laughs> yeah that kind of bullshit um Anyway, so we've talked about the tech industry enough, I think. So yeah. what should we move we can, on to next? Uh, uh, let's do the healthcare industry because okay. that's always something that's kind of close to my heart. Um, so I'm curious, what is the healthcare industry like in Bahrain? Um, okay, so look, we're a, we're, we're a small island that depends a lot on importing stuff from all over the world and other medical technologies um but the 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 one thing that i can mention here that i think i've spoken to you about one on one before is i i'm i'm a type 1 diabetic and because mm-hmm. of that i need to monitor my blood sugar quite closely and uh, about 2 years ago i found out about a system called the freestyle libra and the freestyle libra is a patch that you attach to your arm it has a small fiberglass needle it doesn't hurt at all or whatever it just just goes under the skin and it allows you to scan your arm with in, uh, it comes with a scanner but if you have an uh, an nfc enabled phone then you can check it with your phone as well and this is what i've got and it's what i've used for the last 2 years now the the scanner that i've got um will last two weeks. Uh, at the end of those two weeks, I have to take the, the patch off one arm, change to another patch on the other arm. This costs me approximately um, 25 dinar per patch. Now, uh, just, just to give you an idea, obviously this is not the right way to do things, but to give you an idea, uh, one dinar is $2.65. Um, and it is a pegged currency. Uh, the, the Bahraini dinar what? is pegged to the US dollar. What's the average hourly wage there in dinars? Um, average hourly wage, It uh, this is where things get complicated because in Bahrain it depends on your nationality. Oh, uh, okay. A, a Bengali worker will get less than a Filipino worker and Filipino worker will get less than an English worker, for instance. Um simply because I mean, we, we mostly have that it's not a, it's not as explicit here but you know if you're yeah. if you're south american you're probably going to be in a, a lower paying job but yeah. like and it, um and it's all considered relative to what you are able to earn back home okay um, so i mean it gets complicated i i think it's better left for another episode because i also feel like it has some racist overtones um oh yeah but in essence so I have to now 25 dinars, let's call it the equivalent of about $60 um, every two okay. weeks that I have to change. So that's twice a month 
call it 120 130 dollars a month okay. that i have to pay for these patches contrast that with the same exact technology literally the same exact product and everything in the us where the mm -hmm. patch um the software the, uh, on the scanner itself the scanner used to scan everything uh the software has been tweaked so that the scanner and the patch uh, the the system only lasts 10 days okay let's sink in for a second because now you're talking about rather than use uh, uh, changing the patch twice a month you're changing it three times a month so right from the from the healthcare industry perspective the us is a much more lucrative market and we've got to take into account the fact that relatively speaking the product is more expensive in the us as with everything in the us healthcare industry of course so yeah um when you say how is healthcare here it's cheaper not as cheap okay. as it's not as cheap as it is for me back in south africa um like uh dentistry here is insanely expensive because it's difficult to get um a, a large amount of dentists onto the island at any given time so there aren't many so do you guys have insurance there there is healthcare insurance okay but it is not like it's not provided by all employers um uh -huh. and it's it's a little bit on the pricey side if you go through it uh, go for it privately okay so do a lot of people pay out of pocket uh, most of the local clinics and stuff have very reasonable rates okay so you go in to see a doctor and uh, once you've paid for a, a visit follow-up visits are free that kind of stuff okay it, like it's most teeth are luxury reasonable. bones so oh, yeah they're more oh, expensive yeah. okay oh, yeah. <laughs> like uh, the, the the next dental work i'm having done is when i go visit back home uh, oh, I see. Okay. I'll wait the two years and sit with toothache rather than pay the, the fees here. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> and we all know what toothache is like. Uh, the, the, the costs are worse. Yeah, yeah. That's the real ache. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think healthcare in the US, pretty obvious example of sabotage. I mean, there's no reason at all for the health insurance industry to exist. It's all it does is collect money from people and bet on um, taking in more premiums than it gives out in payments. So it, it completely thrives on harming and killing people um, in order to turn a profit. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, just straight up rationing. Um, yeah. It's separate from industry, like very distinctly separate because the, I mean, the industry is privately owned here as well. Um, and there's all kinds of um, problems with inflation in the actual industry part, but the, the health insurance business is, is just the totally separate form of strategic sabotage um, that, yeah, it, it just profits on people's death and, you know, I, I, I wrote in the notes, I doubt that many people in the healthcare industry, if anyone think that they're rationing healthcare or consciously intend to force people into suffering or death, uh, they probably just think like, that's just the way that it works. And in some sense it's true because like, 
that's the only way that that industry can function. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like a very stark example of strategic sabotage and it's horrible effects. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, the, I'm always struck by the fact that by law, uh, the CEO of any company is required to, um, ensure the profits for shareholders. My oh, that's actually not true. I looked. I looked this up a couple months ago. Oh yeah. Um, that, yeah. That that is not actually correct. There are some corporations uh, where the corporate charter says that shareholder value has to be a priority above anything else. Um, but it's not. It's not a law. Um, I think that's just an internet rumor that was started in probably around the same time that Zeitgeist came out. <laughs> Um, Might have even come from Zeitgeist, actually. <laughs> uh, it's possible, but um, very specifically, what I'm referring to here is um, contract law. Um, if it is put into writing and the CEO signs a contract stating where, where uh, he states that uh, he signs off on the company charter, and the company charter requires him to put that ahead, the the uh, uh, a court of law will uphold that. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah, contract, uh, contract, contracts have to be upheld. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, it is required by law that, uh, people end up thinking that that's the way it works, that, mm-hmm. that the death and suffering is, is, uh, uh, it's like a cost benefit analysis really, which yeah, for, necessary for me, evil. Yeah. So, as much as I want to demonize people, at the end of the day, it's it, uh, uh, rather than it seeming as callous as all that, it is literally the way that things work. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. In 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 the systemic legal sense. So. Yeah, and there's and there's changed. so much bureaucracy around it that you know, <laughs> even if you work in the healthcare industry, you probably feel very disconnected from the actual realities of killing people. To make money. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, I know people that work in the insurance industry. They're not, they're not like bad bloodthirsty people. They're just like yeah. normal bureaucrats who, you know, they just do a, a tiny part of the entire mega machine. And the mega machine is this big evil thing that, that kills people. Something that I've been thinking about recently, um, because my new job has me doing, just like my old job, uh, uh, taking on more responsibility than the actual um, original scope of work that I was given. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've been thinking recently that uh, modern capitalism and the way that it functions now by trying to extract more uh, 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 value out of workers uh, in the sense of... of um, increasing scope of work without increasing pay, that kind of thing. That's very much undermining the whole concept of division of labor. Because for me, division of labor was always about um, separating everything and and compartmentalizing people's jobs so that uh, they are just a cog in the mega machine. Um, Yep. And and because they're not... An irreplaceable one. Especially. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very replaceable, so on and so forth. But modern capitalism is sort of making everyone be jack of all trades. Um, 
Yeah. So many of the people that I work with are able to go from food and beverage straight into uh, sales and marketing, straight into front office work, straight into admin or accounting. And, and being able to be aware of all of these different systems makes you uh, uh, more capable of seeing the broader problem. And mm -hmm. I can't help but feel like modern capitalism is inadvertently setting itself up for a kind of failure there. Obviously, there's lots of other things that have to fall into place before that kind of failure would actually happen. But this is something right. that's been on my mind recently. Um, so let's move I on to transportation because there's I think there's people that can cover healthcare a lot better than we can. I haven't studied it nearly as much as a lot of other people on the yeah, left. And also, and also, you've written a lot of notes of transportation, and I'd, I'd hate for that to go to waste. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, Wait, am the, I supposed to read Chris's bit? <laughs> I mean, you can if you want. Um, so we're, we're yeah, going to start with automobiles. Um, okay. I'm going to try and do Chris's voice. Okay. Uh, really badly. And be a total cow. Sound like a valley girl every time you try to do an American. <laughs> so well, funny, dude. <laughs> it, it's it's totally deliberate. Uh, oh my god. Um, so this is like classic... me doing a batted British accent to impersonate you. <laughs> okay, so hi everyone. My name is Chris, and I just want to say that a classic example of sabotage in automobiles is cars. <laughs> um. Yeah, so apparently Chris was supposed to say that auto companies bought out local trams, rails, etc., and then ripped up all their infrastructure and replaced uh, those with bus lines and pushed car ownership. Yeah, so he also added they were owned and run by rich hobbyists, which is interesting. Like, so I guess like they just liked cars. They were like car guys in the 1900s, and they <laughs> made, they forced everyone to be car guys as well yeah, all i'm picturing is like two kids sitting in a basement somewhere and one of them loves playing with his train set and the other guy's like well mine my my hot wheels cars aren't as elaborate as your train set i'm gonna kick out your entire train set just so that i yeah. have more room to run around with my little car set and then the the kid with the trains your little bitch ass up, trains have to be on tracks motherfucker <laughs> you, you your, your your things are stupid my cars can go on the walls <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah so like if you i mean if you look if you go on google and search um like the name of a like a major city and then 1900s or 1910s um you'll find pictures uh where they all have like tram or trolleys uh tram or trolley lines like in the downtown area like even something like los angeles which is like heavily associated with cars it's like the most notoriously uh like it has the worst traffic in the u.s um i would i would argue that they are tied with us um but you know most people associate bad traffic with la but if you look if you go uh google los angeles 1910s uh you will see trolley lines so like all these cities had that um, I think, uh, murder Brian from street fight was talking about, uh, Columbus having trolley lines, uh, DC 
had trolley lines, and they they just recently re-added them. Uh, so we we now have a trolley again um, that was built like ten years ago. Um, so on the like hundred year anniversary of already having it or whatever. <laughs> um, so the entire industry of cars was was dependent on the destruction of public transportation that already existed. And I mean, uh, uh, when you talk about strategic sabotage, the destruction of infrastructure, that, that, that's probably the most blatant version of that specific definition of sabotage. Yeah. And, um, you know, of course, it, it ties in with, with a ton of other uh, parts of political economy, like especially the oil industry. Um, you know, the fact that we use cars means demand for oil is exorbitantly higher than it would be if we were all traveling on trains and trolleys. Um, to the point that, like, I would argue that if if cars never existed, we probably wouldn't have... We would. We probably would not be dealing with climate change now. It would probably be a thing that's a little bit in the future. Maybe, maybe. Because um, like, you have to think about not only like the usage yeah. of cars themselves, but also all the, of the infrastructure that goes into building roads and highways and yeah, and and, and and bigger houses that are farther apart from one another, and exactly. the fact that there's rush hour, which means people spend way more time uh, getting to their job. And the associated industries with that, like fast food, I think would not have taken off if it weren't for rush hour. People would have more time to eat a meal. Um, there's, there's just so many effects of that. Yeah. And it's also heavily tied with uh, white supremacy as well. In the U.S., uh, cars were seen as a way to get away from street rabble, meaning black people mainly. Um, and uh, part of the, um, let's see, part of the strategy for making it practical to use cars in the cities other than tearing up uh, trolley lines was criminalizing jaywalking, which just meant walking in the street, which was a totally normal thing for thousands of years. <laughs> for as long as streets existed prior to cars, it was completely normal to have foot traffic in the street. Uh, uh, and that was criminalized. Uh, yeah, there's something very ironic here that a lot of people might not notice, and that's um, that uh, cars were originally used um, in a racist way to get away from street rabble, and mm-hmm. and and now your modern um, billionaire moguls with racist um, undertones uh, want to build tunneled under cities to get away from street rabble. Using using rail-like um, technologies, I'm, I'm not going to name any names specifically. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else do I have here? Well, you also did mention that the number of deaths due to automobiles being our primary form of transportation are almost as high as the number of deaths due to the lack of healthcare. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's another thing like, right. Um, so there's this really common thing that American conservatives say, I don't know if you've seen this personally, Peter, but anytime gun control comes up, um, 
you know, there's inevitably a bunch of people that are like, yeah, we should ban guns because uh, that would stop uh, mass murders from happening, probably. Uh, and then the conservatives and are like, get a bunch uh, of conservatives uh, uh, saying, oh, should we ban cars too? Those kill thousands of people a year. Yes, we should. <laughs> I agree well, with that unironically. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, 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 the funny thing for me has always been that in, in any nuanced debate that I've seen about um, gun control that where, where this has come up, um, everyone always points out, well, what we're asking for is the, the registration of firearms and the regulation of firearms um, by the government you know, uh, in the same exact way that we regulate cars. Uh, right. You need to pass a test to show that you are capable of using said uh, 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 dangerous item. Uh, and then you need a license to continue using it. And that license gets regulated because it's fucking dangerous. And uh, like, I've always, I've always laughed my head off the moment I see the car analogy jump up in a gun debate. So, yeah. yeah, actually, your vision's better. And the proper but, leftist position, of course, is that cops should not have co uh, guns or cars. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Make them walk behind horses. That, yeah. that, that is the only rational thing to do. Barefoot. Barefoot. Yeah. Barefoot. And, and let's be clear, chained. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put them in chain gangs. Chain gangs. <laughs> Um, I probably shouldn't sing that, right? Someone's <laughs> going to use that on the internet badly. <laughs> um, so just for the numbers, uh, there from automobile deaths, there are 32,000 per year. And for uh, deaths due to lack of health care, the most recent estimate I could find was uh, from 2005, I think it was. So it's probably a lot higher now, but uh, it was 45,000 per year died due to lack of healthcare. So like very close together. Um, yeah. That's and, not very far apart at all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the healthcare industry doesn't have quite as many deleterious effects that, you know, affect other aspects like, you yeah. know, physical space and ecology and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah, they're both, and what, I think they're both like, equally evil industries. <laughs> well, equal, or e equally evil businesses. Sorry. There we go. I was going to correct you, but <laughs> yeah, you did it I have to deprogram well. myself there. <laughs> um, uh, the other thing, while we're on the topic of cars and sabotage, um, I believe the Volkswagen um, uh, CEO is currently on trial for the strategic sabotage that resulted in them misreporting diesel emissions oh, yeah. and everything. And as a result... Did we talk about that on the show? I think we did. I'm sure, yeah, yeah, we mentioned it. Now, as a result of that... Do you want to uh, recap that just in like 20 okay, seconds? Okay, so what happened was uh, VW's engines um, have to go to a regulatory body who does testing on them and then it shows what the uh, uh, what the carbon emissions are from that before they're allowed to go for sale yeah. and what vw did at the time was they fudged the numbers um so that uh, they actually had a piece of software in the car that would detect that it's being tested by the epa and, and would change produce the fake numbers, numbers. Yeah. Yeah. it's wild it's, awesome. it's so really someone cool. programmed the shit like someone yeah. actively 
was like consciously it's, doing this. It's like they were strategic. No possible deny at all. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So as a result of these things, um, making news headlines two or three years ago, uh, first of all, those CEOs on trial uh, facing actual jail time, thank God. And Good. They get the wall. Uh, and on the other end, cities like uh, London um, have now instituted an area within the city where uh, you have to pay a ridiculously higher rate um, for your licensing if you have a certain kind of emission car um, in an attempt to push for low emission vehicles throughout the city of London. And they'll be expanding that zone um, regularly until like 2050 or whatever. So make it a billion uh, dollars. Just make it a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm all for that. And and look, there's a lot of a, a lot of the right wingers, a, a, a lot of the Tories in London are complaining that it's going to affect their business. And I'm like, uh, I don't care as long as you're fucking up the environment. I really don't care that you can't buy another fucking beer. Uh, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not my problem. Yeah. Okay. So they moving on to it. planes, planes, planes. Yeah, so this was a big news story, of course. Uh, Boeing getting in trouble for the 737 MAX. And uh, I, I don't know how many people actually like know what happened there. Um, so I, I read an article that explains it. And it's much dumber than you think it is. Um, so basically, um, like one thing to keep in mind is uh, engines are more efficient the bigger they are. So in order for a jetliner to be as efficient as possible, have as big an engine as possible, which is why uh, jetliners used to have like four engines and now they're, they have two almost always. And um, another thing that people may have noticed is like uh, newer jetliners have like those oblong shaped engines. They're not perfectly circular. And the reason for that is so that they can increase the size of the engine uh, while keeping enough ground clearance uh, to prevent the engine from hitting the ground when it lands. Um, so the 737 MAX was a new version of the 737 that was supposed to have bigger engines uh, to increase the uh, passenger miles per gallon of fuel. Um, so basically, before that, the, the 737 already maxed out on the size, the amount that they could increase the size of the engine before it would just drag on the ground. Um, so what they did was, I, I can't remember exactly what they did to get more ground clearance, but I think what they did was they tilted the wing um, or something like that. Um, so basically, they they increased the size of the engine without uh, going through this hugely expensive process of redesigning the plane because the center of uh, is either the center of gravity or the center of lift had changed. And basically like when one of those changes position, it changes the balance of the plane. So it affects how, how well it uh, can be controlled and, and all that sort of stuff. So what they did was they wrote a piece of software uh, to make the, uh, the plane's controls like automatically compensate for the change in the center of gravity. And um, software 
overcompensated. Yeah. So the software was a piece of shit. <laughs> um, and the only reason that this, this passed safety regulations was because they convinced the FAA to let them regulate themselves. Um, so they just said, oh, yeah, no, uh, yeah, our, you know, fear not, fear not. We would never jeopardize the safety of our passengers, of course. Uh, that would be bad for business. Um, but, of course, they did do that. And so hundreds of people died uh, because of a piece of shitty software um, that was supposed to increase their passenger miles per gallon probably by, like, you know, a couple dozen or something. <laughs> like some tiny number, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Now, two interesting bits about this. Number one, um, the software that they've rewritten, which has now managed to get them past the safety limits and all the testing that they've now started doing on all their th 737 maxes, that piece of software to get it written properly and, and so that it doesn't overcompensate and cause an accident it cost them a grand total of like $20,000 or something. Oh my God. To get, to get that written, to get it done properly. The, 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 so, the it, it, it's a ridiculously small amount of money that they say. Yeah. So to compare to that hundreds of people. So to compare that to another, like uh, to something that I know, um, the phone app that I wrote myself personally uh, for my employer uh, on behalf of a nonprofit, co definitely cost way more than $20,000. <laughs> like, that is a piece of software that probably one developer worked on, maybe I mean, two. And, and I mean, to be clear, what they did was they took the existing software and they probably changed like 20, 30 lines of code. Yeah, that would be, okay. So at my bill rate, that would be four weeks of work. Which is roughly Four the weeks. time. Yeah. Yeah. That's roughly the time it took them to go from a uh, big accident investigation to here we are fixed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so if they had one FTE working on that, which means one full time equivalent worker, uh, yeah, 160 hours. So that's four weeks at 40 hours. That's, God, that's fucking mind blowing, dude. Yeah. On an associated that's, note. Also, the... coincidentally, coincidentally, the uh, safety feature that uh, Transocean and BP uh, begged the U.S. government to let them emit from Deepwater Horizon, also about $20,000. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So there is a thing called an acoustic trigger, which uh, is a safety device for deep sea drilling rigs uh, that is supposed to detect when there is a, a blowout or something like that. Uh, basically, like when there's going to be like a, a huge surge in pressure, that means you need to stop drilling and close the well uh, to let the pressure relax or whatever. Uh, yeah, they they begged the U.S. government to let them omit that safety feature. And that's the reason they didn't detect uh, the oil spill until it became like one of the biggest disasters in history. All to save twenty thousand dollars. Might have been thirty, but still, it's like a, that's like a penny for a corporation like that size. Yeah, yeah, not even, not even. It's it's, yeah. it's literally something that wouldn't be noticed by an accountant who is looking at numbers in the hundreds of billions. Yeah, yeah, oh, just insane. God. Yeah. Um. So we are at an hour and a half. 
that probably includes like 15 minutes of pre-show chatter. Um, uh, so I think we can get, uh, I think we can cover the rest of it. Yeah, we can do it. We can do it. Okay, um, so just yeah, quick note on um, rail. Uh, rail privatization in the UK has resulted in worse outcomes for passengers and higher ticket prices. I want to re yeah. uh, like the reason I quickly want to mention this is because the same thing has happened in South Africa, in uh, the Middle East, in Australia, and I'm guessing probably in the US. I, I don't know much. Yeah, so we much have uh, we have Amtrak. I mean, like the US has so little train infrastructure that it's hard to really talk about. Um, I don't know if there has been any national or state rail lines um, that have been privatized in the last like 50 years. I think Amtrak's been around for a really long time, but Amtrak is very expensive and very slow. Um, the fastest train that I've seen is uh, the Excella. Uh, which is a high-speed train that goes from D.C. Uh, to at least Baltimore. And uh, that actually is a fairly reasonable one. I think it's like 30 or 40 bucks to get there, and it gets you there in like 15 minutes, which is insane because it, like, if I were to drive to Baltimore, it would take me two hours. Um, but yeah, if D.C. to Baltimore in like 15 or 20 minutes, that, that's, that's pretty good. But everything else, like Amtrak is, is dog shit. Um, the trains don't really go anywhere, uh, very useful. Um, they're good if you're trying to commute between cities, but, uh, you have to already be on, like, you have to be near a station for it to be yeah. useful. And the stations are, uh, not numerous at all. No. Uh, there's also the VRE around here, the Virginia rail express, which is a commuter line. I, I don't know if that's state run or not. I've never looked into that. Um, a lot of people do use that, but. Uh, yeah, it doesn't go to many places. Um, and uh, Lee Carter, the socialist um, state representative whose campaign I worked on, um, one of the things he ran on was improving the VRE because it sucks. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. So let's move on to agricultural industry so that we can wrap things up quickly. Um, yes. Now... A paper by Joseph Baines of uh, York University um, in the Journal of Peasant Studies. <laughs> it's a great name. <laughs> I can't believe someone named their journal the Journal of Peasant Studies. I, I love it, dude. I think yeah, peasant yeah, I is the best. I think the peasant is peasant is a better name than like working class. Oh yeah, no, definitely because let's I mean we're we're lords are. and peasants, really. Yeah. Like yeah. that's what this all is. Okay, so the study found uh, that, uh, sorry, the paper found that the top agricultural businesses in the 2000s diverted food crops to ethanol production. Now, <laughs> yeah, this uh, was a long, uh, really, really long game that was being played. This was yeah. like, this is probably the most strategic example of strategic sabotage that we have for this show. Yeah. Um, now, I, I, I don't know if you guys, uh, I mean, the U.S. is probably the foremost producer of ethanol um, from from um, harvest, Corn. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, yeah. So Brazil, Brazil is the biggest producer of ethanol, as far as I know, okay. but they produce theirs from sugarcane, and sugarcane ethanol has a much higher yield. It's it's actually like, uh, I hate to use this term, but economically viable, hmm. uh, even without subsidies. 
Um, so w- one of the things in the paper was ethanol may be the most subsidized commodity in U.S. history. Um, it's completely not a practical like fuel to use. Not only because the yields are so low compared to the energy input, like it, it it's it, it's an energy sink. So the process of converting corn to ethanol takes more energy by a lot than it produces uh, by burning the fuel. And then on top of that, uh, I I mean I didn't verify this, but I've I've been friends with a lot of car guys who will talk about this shit all day. Uh, ethanol like fouls engines. So it actually like degrades your engine over time. So like, not only is it a shitty fuel in terms of its energy content, it's a shitty fuel because it actually like damages your car. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Um, go ahead. uh, I was, uh, a few years ago, I was talking to, uh, a guy who acted as a middleman for some small biofuels company. Okay. Um, uh, And, he was talking about how uh, he made most of his money um, not by actually getting new uh, farmers on board or um, or anything, but literally by lobbying. Yeah, he made most of his money trying to get extra money out of the government to subsidize biofuel um, production. So the the lobbying industry, and, and this was in South Africa, you know what I mean? This is yeah. not... This is not even like the levels we're talking in the U.S. Um, the, the the money isn't even in the finished product. It's not in the organic. Ro- it's in the political economy realm of things. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> a little. Oh no problem. <laughs> um, so okay, so there's actually like a major player that was largely responsible for the ethanol boom, like one one company, which is Archer Daniels Midland. Uh, some people may have heard of it. Heard of it. It's, it used to be uh, probably the biggest agribusiness company in the country. That spot has been taken over by uh, Monsanto, DuPont, um, and Cargill. Um, but so Archer Daniels Midland in the 70s, um, was producing high fructose corn syrup. Um, at the time, they were producing one third of the country's high fructose corn syrup, so they already had like a you know oligopoly on that. Um, the sales of high fructose corn syrup at the time—I don't know if this has changed—but um, at the time, this is definitely true. Um, they were very seasonal, so they peaked in the in the summer when people drank more soda. And then in the winter, they fell off because people didn't drink as much soda. Um, So in order to compensate for the seasonal change, um, Archer Daniels Midland had the idea of producing corn ethanol um, so that in the winter, they could sell fuel, which ostensibly would be used for heating and stuff like that. Um, And then they so they would have a nice steady profit stream all throughout the year. So in the 70s, uh, the Middle East was uh, restricting oil production. They went from what was called the free flow regime, where they would just sell oil in unlimited uh, quantities, to the restricted flow regime, where uh, they were trying to keep the price at a certain level. And so they would only sell uh, enough oil to uh, keep that, that price at that level. 
Um, so that, that was happening. And at the same time, uh, the U.S. was dismantling uh, New, De- New Deal regulations around agriculture. Um, so this was the start of the neoliberal turn, of course. And so a lot of uh, regulations were going away from the New Deal. Um, so with those two things happening, um, Archer Daniels Midland uh, basically lobbied the government extremely hard uh, to get uh, subsidies uh, to the point where they can have their dream of producing ethanol in the cold months of the year. So like this shit is very, is like nuts uh, because like according to a high ranking government official, uh, the CEO of Archer Daniels Midland personally delivered a package uh, containing a book as in a hundred thousand dollars to president Nixon. Uh, So (laughs) it was put in a safe for a year uh, in the white house uh, until Watergate uh, started uh, broiling uh, and <laughs> when it was returned by President Nixon to avoid the uh, additional scandal there. <laughs> so this company straight up gave the president $100,000 trying Come to curry on. favor with him. Come on, just make it happen. Just make it happen. Yeah. Come on, I got, and, I got, a, book uh, for I got a book for you. <laughs> so uh, another uh, thing where they like openly bribed the president, which ironically, uh, liberals love to cite this when they're talking about Trump and how corrupt he is for uh, still maintaining his businesses while he's president, they love to talk about how Jimmy Carter sold his peanut farm. Well, he sold his peanut farm to Archer Daniels Midland. Uh, They bought it for $1.2 million. Um, I did look this up. It was not above market price, so it wasn't quite that kind of bribe, Uh, but they were, they were definitely trying to curry favor doing this. They also offered to buy uh, the next, peanut harvest for some crazy amount. I think it was like $2 million. So they were just openly trying to give uh, Jimmy Carter millions of dollars uh, trying to, you know, make themselves look good so that they could get their uh, corn subsidies. Oh, come on. $2 million. This is peanuts to them, man. <laughs> Sorry, I Thanks, Dad. <laughs> I had to put that in there. <laughs> that is your role on the show. <laughs> Making the dad joke. <laughs> Oh God! I, I, my wife loves them. She absolutely <laughs> loves them, and by loves them, I mean gives me death stares every time I so much as think about making one. Because she can tell now. I get this look on my face, like I'm formulating it. <laughs> um. So one of the uh, another very instrumental official for getting Archer Daniels Midland its ethanol business was uh, the famous Bob Dole. So Bob Dole supports Archer Daniels Midland. Uh, he took numerous trips on Archer Daniels Midland private jets to company events, uh, was paid for speaking at those events, and uh, he was also sold the CEO's Miami vacation home uh, for well below the market rate. <laughs> so they're just straight I, up bribing I, 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 Bob Dole. I have a small property that I could hand off to you, you know? Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Come yeah. On. Um, you know, do you know who that does sound like, though? It who? sounds like um, a certain presidential candidate in 2016 who was very deep in the pockets of um, the fracking industry. 
Oh, but hey, come on, man. If uh, if you were offered $100,000 to give a speech to some bankers, you would do that too, right? You uh, would all do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'd take the Everyone 100K. Is, as morally bankers I'd take as the 100K I and I would definitely give those bankers a talking to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, eventually, this meant that Archer Daniels Midland got uh, tax breaks for ethanol fuel production and they got they even got tariffs on foreign competitors. So the Brazilian ethanol producers that were making it from sugarcane that were actually economically viable, uh, they had tariffs put on them by the U.S. government so that they couldn't uh, really compete with the corn ethanol. Um, another bill later raised the price of sugar uh, to twice the market price of the rest of the world and extended import quotas, which meant uh, limiting the amount of imports to offset this high price, uh, both of which helped uh, not only high fructose corn syrup producers, but ethanol producers as well. Um, and so at the end of the 80s, Archer Daniels Midland controlled 75% of domestic ethanol production. That's how you get market share, people. Yep. Uh, another way that you do that is by uh, becoming the largest campaign contributors for Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton. Uh, so Clinton, uh, the other Clinton, uh, received $3.5 million in a single fundraiser led by Archer Daniels Midland. And so as soon as he got into office, uh, he mandated that highly polluted cities uh, cut their gasoline with ethanol fuel, which actually pollutes even more than gasoline does. Well done. Well, Thanks, Clinton. Well done. Best another president one. ever. Another one for the donkeys. And his wife, also good. Yeah. Great people. Great. Hopefully great she people. runs in 2020. I'm, I'm hoping for that to happen. Oh, we, we really yeah. need. Yeah. I mean, it's her turn, so... Yeah, and, and let's face it, I'm with her. Yeah, still with her, both of us. Uh, for, this show forever. has been paid for by anarchist Hillary Clinton. <laughs> okay, um, the last thing that we're going to cover very quickly is international sabotage, and uh, very specifically focusing on um, something that's been covered before. Uh, Venezuela. Recently, actually. Venezuela. Um, Venezuela. <laughs> Now, I want to be very clear and say that just because I oppose uh, the, the right-wing backing of a right-wing um, usurper president in the form of Juan Guaido does not mean that I support a leftist authoritarian like Maduro. I, uh, I support Maduro. I, 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 I'm, I'm just straight up going to say it. I, I support Maduro. Uh, he's, he is doing good shit. Uh, it's, you know, in a, in a perfect world, it's bad to repress protest, but, uh, a lot of that protest is fucking like CIA backed coup attempts yeah. and it's perfectly logical to, uh, to put those people in prison or, uh, to use troops against them because they're trying to take over the country so that they can kill even more people and put even more people in prison. Cause that's what the U S does every single fucking time. They stage a coup in Latin America. Um, even if Maduro is doing bad things, I I really don't want to like say, oh well, yeah, of course he's doing bad things because first of all, like the the media around that is controlled by people that are interested in overthrowing the government. Um, so there's no way to know for sure 
what's correct and what isn't. And so I don't want to say like, oh, of course he's doing bad things because I I don't know. I, okay. I don't know the facts of it. And I would rather counter signal and say, fuck to the US, uh, fuck to Guaido. Maduro's good. Uh, he's helping poor people. And that's why he has tons of support from people. Okay. So I want to clarify what I'm busy saying. I'm busy okay. saying <laughs> that I support neither because at the end of the day, what's busy happening in Venezuela is strategic sabotage. It is, yep. it is uh, very large international oil coalitions that yep. know that their biggest threat comes from the Venezuelan oil reserve. Mm-hmm. That oil reserve needs to be undermined at every possible corner so that international oil prices can be kept stable. And by stable, I mean profitable. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Now, what happened is that uh, about a decade ago when the the Venezuelan um, oil reserve uh, was first fully opened up to the rest of the world um the 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 rest of the international interests decided that they were going to undermine it by dropping out the price of oil so that very literally the oil barrel that the oil came in was more expensive than the oil itself this this straight up caused an economic crisis in venezuela of insane proportions. Mm-hmm. Now, I will give Maduro props that he managed to take a, a very, very dire situation and make the best of it. Yeah. Uh, the the Venezuela the, the Venezuela prior to this latest set of setbacks, uh, uh, that country was not thriving because it had endured several decades of hardship because of its... Yeah, they had a military dictatorship prior to Chavez. Yeah. Which is what the U.S. wants to put in again. Okay. They want to go back to that. So what what we're looking at now with Venezuela is you you can't listen to the media because they don't... They're not privy to what's happening in the boardroom meetings at the large oil companies. The only people that know what's really going on in the situation are the executives that are sitting on those boards. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and anyone who is basing their information. Maybe the on State what, Department too. <laughs> well, to a certain extent, I, I mean, they do have the ear of big, or, or the, the right. big companies do have the State Department. Yeah, they're working together. <laughs> yeah, very closely. Um, anyone you talk to online, who gets their information from media outlets doesn't have a fucking clue what is going on. I just want to be very clear about that. If they're talking about uh, 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 Maduro or they're talking about Guaido, then they don't know what's really going on. What's really going on has to do with major oil interests. Yeah. And and that is my rant for the day. Yeah. And um, as we covered on the Capitalist Power episode, um, I don't know which episode, but I can put it in the show description. Oh, and also the Venezuela episode is uh, 404, uh, season four, episode four. Um, As we covered on the Capitalist Power episode, um, the 
the interests of the U.S. government and uh, major oil companies are so inextricably linked that you can look at the differential capitalization of top oil companies and use it to predict when the U.S. will start new wars in oil-rich areas, uh, which Nissan and Bickler did uh, to predict not only Desert Storm, but the Iraq War as well. Um, and they did so in writing. Uh, so, like, very robust relationship there. Um, so, um, oh, and the, and the other major interest in Venezuela, as we covered in the Venezuela episode, is the agricultural industry, um, or the, generally the food industry. Um, sorry, food business. I got to keep saying business. Um, So the biggest companies in Venezuela are Cargill, which we did an episode about, is an American-owned agricultural services company, and PepsiCo, uh, who they own the – I think they own the largest grocery chain in Venezuela. And and so they're the ones that are raising prices uh, to starve the peasants of Venezuela. Um, So all that that hyperinflation that people talk about – that's supposedly Maduro's fault, uh, of course, can't be because the government has no direct control of inflation. Businesses have direct control of inflation, and they're the ones that are actually doing it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's all I really had on this. Well, it's enough, I think. Yeah. Um, I think we've covered uh, the difference between business and industry, various forms of business sabotaging industry. Yeah, um, we could come up with examples all day, but I think I think we have yeah, some good uh, ones. Yeah, like here. literally yeah. we could do it all day because it's yeah. that. Maybe we'll uh, do mean, another one in the future. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is the way business runs, people. Uh, yeah. If you're not sabotaging industry, you're not in business. Yes. So uh, if you enjoyed that, Check out our other episodes. Uh, our website is neighborsciencepodcast.com. Uh, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. We have seven five-star ratings, which is uh, – that's pretty good, you know? Oh, my God. You guys have gotten seven five-star ratings since I left the show. Yeah. That is yes. really depressing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that doesn't even – well, you know what? It's not depressing because none of those ratings are just me or Chris or you. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen other podcasts that they re- they review their own shows, and I I I had iTunes open the other day. I was looking to see how many ratings we have, and I was like, maybe I should write a review for it. And I was like, no, that would be pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would. Oh Not shitting on other people that have done this. I think it's it's fine to game the system. You know, if you, if you think that's good to do, go ahead. But, but I would feel bad about myself if I were to no, rate my own podcast. <laughs> all jokes aside, if you are going to do something like that, do it properly and set up a troll farm and yeah. <laughs> hold your own account. Make sure that 30% Politics. of the reviews are neg- Yeah, yeah. Make sure 30% of the reviews are negative and that <laughs> uh, at least 10% of your reviewers respond to those negative responses with positive responses. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, if you're going to troll farm, Sorry, do you had this right. experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Man, it's been fun being back. Yeah. Glad to have you back, man. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully you have time to do another one soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, look... Uh, over the month of Ramadan, uh, I'm I'm hoping that I don't have time to do this again. 
Um, I want to spend <laughs> no. Well, well, my wife gets a little bit more time off during Ramadan, so I'm hoping to spend more time with her. Uh, I yeah, have that's been, fine. Yeah, I've been neglecting her a little bit too much over the last year or so uh, with work taking up so much of my time. So yeah, well, after Ramadan though, my usual day off is on a Sunday, and that falls nicely on the weekend. So I might be able to step in more often and and help out with some podcasts. And, awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we can talk about uh, we can talk about Marvel movies and shit. We haven't talked about that in a long time on the show. So yeah, yeah. I think Chris, yeah, I don't think Chris I, gets into those. So I do want to talk about Infinity War because I hated that movie so fucking much. <laughs> well, uh, like uh, if we were talking about it, I'd be talking about the two billion dollar two week payday that Disney has racked up with Endgame. Uh, in, yeah. It is. So we'll, we'll we'll do one on that. We'll yeah, do one on yeah. that. Definitely worth talking about. Um, and by that time, and I think the Fox merger went through as well. Yeah, Fox merger has gone through. They're just dotting uh, dotting the T's and crossing the I's now. Um, yeah, yeah. We and, Peter and I did an episode on that, uh, which was in season two. So check that one out as well. Yeah. Cool guys. Uh, yeah. Nice to hear from everyone. Uh, yeah. Thanks for coming on, on, Peter. Hit me on up on Twitter. I haven't been active in a while, but now that I'm a social media manager again, hopefully I'll be able to uh, keep an eye on Twitter more often. All right, man. Uh, yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye. Bye now.